So I invite you to turn in your Bibles in whatever format you may have the Bible, and that was obviously varied nowadays, but if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, we're picking up this morning on what we've been looking at in the past. I'm very conscious this month you're getting a good um, rest of me, because we had Graham, bless him for his ministry, and then we had John, and next week you're having Ian, so you only have to put up with me once this month. Um, that might mean I'll you know, only get a, a quarter of my salary, so I don't know whether, you know, because I'm only, I'm only here once, but I can assure you um, I've been doing other things. But, um, but it's good to hear different people, and we are very privileged here of having people who bring God's word to us. But I wanted this morning to go back and to pick up on the theme of the Jesus being our great high priest, and you'll see that from our order of service. And so if you open your Bibles to that section, Hebrews chapters, well, the end of chapter 4, 5, 6, and into chapter 7, it's quite a big section, obviously no more than a page in any Bible, unless it's very small print. But as you do that, I just want, uh, first of all, to, to, to just a wee disclaimer, the theme of Jesus, our great high priest, is something that has, well, could fill a library of books. It is profound, and even just as we did it simply with the young people and touched upon what happened on Good Friday. It's a very profound thing. There is a mystery to it. It has been something that many thinkers, Christian thinkers, have written about and reflected upon. Um, and the writer of the book of Hebrews spends much time thinking about it and reflecting upon it here. In particular, he picks up the theme of Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, you want to pronounce him in chapter 7. And in doing that, he refers not only, and we might not fully appreciate this, but refers not only to um, the brief scriptural um, inclusion of him in the book of Genesis and the psalm that I read earlier, but actually to much Jewish literature that was about, at the time, non-biblical literature, but Jewish literature. The writer to the Hebrews draws upon that. The letter of Jude draws upon that. Um, but literature which for us Gentiles sitting here would be at best a mystery. And so you could explore all of that. I, I doubt whether many of us would find that particularly defined. Some might, but most of us wouldn't. Um, and so we're not going to overly open up that particular part of this letter. Not because it's wrong, but just because we are just an ordinary congregation of ordinary punters here um, and Gentiles. And a lot of that would really resonate with our knowledge and background. So, I have to say, we're not going to be doing that. And in one sermon, um, at least at the moment, we can only touch upon the theme. So, that's a disclaimer of there ever was one, but I want to make that clear. In case you're listening at home and expecting, you know, a, the full booner, you'll be disappointed. So, you can switch off at this point and make a coffee or do something else. But I do want us to think of the theme. I do want us to think of the theme because it's central, as we saw even with the young people, it's central to what Jesus Christ achieved for us when he gave his life as a ransom for many. And it's essential even today. We are far removed from the world of the New Testament in many ways. Not in every way, but in many ways. But nonetheless, it is essential today. A, a number of years ago, 10 years ago, probably more now, Elizabeth and I and indeed the boys had a great privilege, 2012 it was, to go on a cruise down the River Nile. Hasten to add, we went because it was the time of the Arab Spring, some of you will remember that, and prices were dirt cheap. And indeed, when we got onto our cruise boat, we had been upgraded and we had to walk through about six 
before we actually got onto the one wheel. And the man actually thanked us for coming because people just weren't going to that part of the world. And we still remember that first morning as we sailed from Luxor, up, well, down the Nile, really, down towards Aswan. When we looked out the window, you, we could have been back in the Bible times because there on the bank of the River Nile was a guy dressed up with all the, the gear, the Arab gear. wasn't dressed up. That was what he would wear on a donkey pulling a wooden cart and just up the banks. And, well, yes, you can be there at the time of Moses or the time of Jesus. And when we returned to Luxor, we went to visit the Temple of Karnak. Some of you may have done that yourselves. That is in Luxor. And as you went into that temple, if you've ever seen it even on television, it's a massive complex. There was a whole host of other kinds of buildings. But interesting enough, when you actually got towards the temple, there was also various courtyards. And as you went through it, right away, witness and remind everybody right at me where it reminded me a bit of Solomon's temple and indeed of course that's it was built at the same kind of era and the understanding in some ways was quite similar there was outer courts for the plebs and the visitors and as you went further and further in those who could go further and further in became more and more selective what was also miraculous was as you looked up into the very corners of the bits that were still covered with roofs on, you could still see some of the colouring that was on the cornicing of the temple, despite the fact it had been built, what, 3,000 years ago. And that in itself was amazing, that you could still see the colouring. And as you went further and further in, it got darker, it got more enclosed, until you arrived at what was their Holy of Holies their inner sanctum which would have been protected and shielded by massive doors or by heavy curtains and inside that obviously this is a recreation was a plinth and on top of that plinth was a well a golden bull it wasn't gold obviously but that's what it represented a bull because of course they worshipped these things remember the people of israel in the wilderness, remember when they were journeying and they parted and began to forget where they'd been and who their God was, remember? And they melted their, their, their items, a lot of their items, and made, what did they make? But a golden bull, a golden calf to worship. Because that's what they had seen and been familiar with in Egypt, how the lure of Egypt still continued, even when they were on the land and the journey to the land of promise. And so this idea that, yes, there was access, but it was limited, it was only for certain people, for people who had knowledge, who had access, and there was to be a focus for that in a particular place. You see that in the Temple of Karnak in Luxor. And the temple in Jerusalem would have been very similar, including the temple that existed in the days of Jesus, not Solomon's temple, but Herod's temple. This idea that the access to God, the access to his presence was restricted, was only for certain people at certain times and required a sacrifice of a bull, of blood, of a lamb, of a scapegoat, that that had to be done in order to earn God's favor in order to secure his access into his presence. I'm not an expert in any of that. I hasten to add. 
but I'm just trying to explain for most of us anyway. Some of us have maybe better knowledge than I even I have, but nonetheless, for most of us, that hopefully pick, you can picture in your mind what we're talking about. And that, of course, is a language that undergirds much of what the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing here, because he's writing to Christians, but Christians who come from that Judeo background and that idea. Now, we might be sitting here in church this morning and say, well, that's all very interesting. And it would be very easy for this to become a, a, a history lesson or a lesson in abstract theology or the religion or philosophy of religion. We don't have temples like that. Well, actually, we do nowadays, interesting enough, in, in, in our country. But for us, we tend not to have temples like that going about Uddingston or this part of the area where we live. And so it all seems a bit alien. And yet, I would suggest this morning that although your ordinary Scottish person, whatever background they may be from, would not be rushing to a temple like that, and would not have that idea of access to God in that kind of way, nonetheless, what is very popular nowadays is for people, maybe not you folks, but I would think some of your family, to turn to someone or to some philosophy, or to some program, some fitness schedule, or some way of thinking and being that people believe will allow them to access life on a higher and better and more enjoyable plane. You'll sometimes hear, I've made reference to this in the back, people talking about living their best life. And they usually do that in the context of being able to either be super fit or super handsome or super wealthy or able to do things or see things or experience things that most ordinary people can't do. So they would visit various parts of the world and journey around and be able to take in some of that. And, and, and they'll look to someone or something or some philosopher, some idea to allow them to have access to that better life to some high priest, to some form of ritual or religion or practice, as I say, that would enable them to enter in and leave the rest of us behind. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? And so while in our Scottish culture, we're not all rushing to the Temple of Karnak or things like that, or we go there and see it, but the idea behind, you know, the outer, the inner, the drawing near, and then somehow to. That is in our culture, just clothed in different forms. And of course, the reason for that is because it's built into who we are. We were meant to walk with garden in the cool of the day, as the book of Genesis tells us, and to walk in intimacy and in fellowship. That is now broken. We sense that we're alienated from, well, we are alienated from God. We don't articulate it as that. We're just alienated from, surely things should be better. I should be better. The world should be better. Things just aren't right. And so, by doing this, we'll be able to fix it, at least for me. And so, in that thinking, that longing still remains. The sad reality is that people aren't turning largely so, largely so, to Christianity. That's why, of course, what we do tomorrow is so important for our primary seven to children, most of whom, vast majority of whom, have no church or Christian background, not even a scooby, really. 
And as they've come over the years, primary, well, obviously lockdown's affected, but Karen, thankfully, was able to go in and do some work with the school then. But primary five, sixes, and sevens, as they come and have this focused time, at least something of the framework of what stands at the heart of Christianity is revealed, including the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's read together. Now, that's a long introduction, but let's read together some verses. You'll see it on the order of service from Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 16. And we read these verses. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he was promised, or what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. BB him. We could have sung it. Perhaps we'll do it another week. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. People swear by someone greater than themselves. People do look, yes, they do look for someone, something, some idea, some program greater than themselves. That's built into our psyche. They want to be confident that things will, the things that are promised will be confirmed. They want an oath which will put an end to all argument. And one of the rise, the great rise in... Alison and others who are lawyers will know this. The great lies, rise in, in people going to court and suing people is because there's this very real sense that people's word has to be their bond. It may not be my bond, but expect yours to have it as a bond. So if you say something, you have to deliver it. You have to do it. You have to, and if you don't, well, we'll see you in court. There's a longing for things to be trustworthy and for the promise to be a reality. Well, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that God does that. What if we're, and of course, in one sense, we're not meant to make oaths, but sometimes people will say, I swear on my what? My mother's life or my own life or whatever else. Well, God has sworn his promise and he has sworn it on the life of his son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Remember the story of the transfiguration? And the voice from heaven that confirmed what John the Baptist had heard when Jesus had been baptized. That this is God's son, God's final word. And the father swore by him that what he has promised will be fulfilled. And John actually has a very interesting insight into this. We read in John chapter 11 as Jesus prepares to go into Jerusalem. And we read in John chapter 11, no, John chapter 12 rather, and verse 28, the voice came from heaven. Jesus cries out, Father, glorify your name. Well, I'll read verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And we read, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified and will glorify it. 
And the crowd that was there heard it and said it thunders. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. You see, God honored his son, his oath, that the way would be opened. The promise of Jesus that when he is lifted up, it's only not those and such of those, not by some secret ritual. And that's why, of course, Gnosticism began to appear. And that's why things undergirding some other religions in today are so wrong. Secret rituals, secret sayings, secret actions. There is to be none of that within Christianity or indeed with the house of God. It is open. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw people to myself, irrespective of race and religion and background and wealth or uncultural setting. He has opened the way. And the Father from the heavens said, and I will honor that. I will glorify him because he is doing what my purpose, my promise has been. My unchanging nature of his unchanging nature of his purpose has been fulfilled. And we're told in Hebrews he's done that by entering into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus, our forerunner, who has done it on our behalf. He has opened the way. Now, I have to say to you this morning, it's vital we actually do believe that. It's vital, first of all, because it's, it's, it's completely different from all the other world faiths. And I know nowadays people will say, including my wife, oh, you better watch, watch what you say on the media. Well, on this point, I don't care. Because... To say anything else would be blasphemy. Jesus is the only way. He's the only one who went through that curtain in a sense and into God's presence. Not the prophet Muhammad, not the Buddha, not some other deity, whether it be in history or in fiction. Only Jesus has torn that curtain. Only Jesus came from the Father and entered into this world. Only Jesus is our forerunner and provides a hope that is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. How we thank God that today there are Muslims through the ministry of Sat 7 and in other ministries are turning to Christ who they're told is, yes, a teacher, yes, a prophet, but not the Messiah, not the one sent from God. And they're turning to him. Why are they turning to him? Because in their religion, they have no hope. They have no anchor for their soul. There's no certainty of salvation, nor assurance of forgiveness of sin. And so we need to know that. Yes, to stand on that truth. Not because we are arrogant, not because we look down our noses at people of other faiths, but because out of love and compassion, we desire that all would hear and see and taste the good things of God. But we also need to know it for our own sakes. Is our hope in Him? Because if it's not, then we're on the wrong side of the curtain and we're lost. And so we have this hope, an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters in a sanctuary behind the curtain 
where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. That is fundamental to what God has achieved in Christ for his people. And we're going to open up a bit further. If you want to turn to chapter 7. Now, as I say, I'm very much, I'm very conscious. There's a lot more that could be said, but I'm also very conscious that perhaps even some of us feel we've said enough. Um, so let's, let's just look at um, chapter 7 and verse 23. And he spends much time reflecting on this figure from the Old Testament, this prototype of the Messiah, as I say. There could be much said about that, but we're, we're not going to do that today. Verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. I'm very conscious, I know you've picked this up from many things I've been saying, of the aging process, I'm afraid to say, especially since I was in hospital just a year or so ago. And ever since then, things really haven't really got back to normal. Not, and I don't mean that in any way, poor you, I don't mean that, it's just one of the results. For instance, a little illustration you probably wish I didn't share with you, but I stubbed my toenail, my toe, a year, well, last June in Holiday, on holiday, the corner of the bed, and some of us, I really stubbed it. I gave it a right whack. It's, if you want to see it afterwards, I'm more than willing to share it with you. But let's just say that it's taken, what, nearly nine months or more, and it's still not grown out. No, the, the, the scabby bit. Well, there we are. That's the picture for further. Instead of Jesus, our great high priest, you'll be thinking about my scabby toes. But it still hasn't grown out. You know what I mean? It's taking a long, long time. And as we get older, that happens, doesn't it? That's to remind me, to remind all of us, however young we still may be, that we're mortal. Like the flowers of the field, we're here for a season and then passed away. But the word of the Lord endures for a season, forever. That longing, that best life, we grab it, or people grab it, and it's like grabbing the sand on the beach. The more we hold on to it, the more it trickles out of our grasp. That's not to cause us to despair. That's meant to make us even more aware of our need of an eternal, faithful, just and true God who when he says something delivers it and will stand the test of time. The ebb and flow of human history and how much human history has gone through in the 160 years since this church was built. The ebb and flow, and that almost, I, I'm more and more I'm aware of that, standing in this pulpit. 
the times and the seasons of life, the ebb and flow of history, but God's Word, the living Word, Jesus, endures for all eternity. And that is our need. That's why in those verses, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, verse 24, Jesus lives forever. He is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely or forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Relationships, partnerships, friendships come and go. The ebb and flow of life. You get to a certain age and you've got nobody left that you were a pal with at school and all the rest of it. That's all part of life. Even the best marriage, one of us will have to go eventually. Don't fight over who's going to be the first one to go. But God in Christ always lives to intercede for us. And such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, i.e. is no like us. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day and day after day for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. And he sacrificed for their sins, for my sins, once and for all, when he offered himself. And the oath, God's final word, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased, appointed the son. He is to be trusted. And how in the transitory times in which we live, How in the changing times in which we live, how in the ebb and flow of the times in which we live, that truth which you will refer to later on in this letter, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever is so valid. That's why the gospel is always relevant. Yes, it has to be presented, it has to be shared in a way which is relevant for the time so that people can understand. That is at the very importance. Tomorrow we'll seek to do that under Karen's leadership in a way which is helpful and accessible for the young people come, of course. We might share the message slightly differently. But the work, Jesus, there's no quibbling about that. And don't let anyone in the church, and sadly there will be those not in this church, I don't mean this congregation, but in the church or outside of the church tell you that, well, just, you know, can I keep him, you know, just be nice and be good. That's enough. No. He is the apostle. He is the priest. He is the king. He's the core and center. Why? Because he's just what a fallen humanity needs. And as we close these verses from verse 14 of chapter 4, reading, Therefore, and actually that therefore, well, hopefully makes sense to me, but now, therefore. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. That's a word for us today, my friends. Let's hold firmly to the faith we profess. Not be tossed about by every wind and wave. Why should we do that? He goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, 
But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. We may not want to show, was it the life of Brian, which portrayed Jesus having naughty thoughts about Mary Magdalene, but there was a truth there. Whoever you are, and if you're listening to this online, you think, oh, but there's no way that God could ever, ever accept me because of the things I've thought, the things I've done. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. He is able to empathize with you. But not just to empathize. That word means coming alongside in order to minister forgiveness and grace and change. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he is to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I am becoming your father, I become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. How often Jesus prayed for those disciples. Remember, they found him. Even when they were out in the boat. Remember, and it was dark and the wind stopped. And Jesus had been praying for them and for his ministry up and that. And what did he do? He came and he walked to them to minister to them in the midst of the storm. That is our high priest who will come to you in the midst of the storms of life to minister with his outright outstretched, pierced hand, his grace and his mercy. Son, verse 8, though he was, he learned obedience to what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek, verse, chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and the priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, with a beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. The king of righteousness. And the king of peace. This is Jesus. Nick and Meg Wainwright are away through to Edinburgh with Robert Wainwright to the baptism of their nephew's baby. 
and the bit Robert came to visit myself and John Fairfield during the week, just on Friday, and shared a very talking away. And he was talking about, we asked him how things were going in Oriel College. It's a very different setting from, from here, a very different kind of congregation as well. Um, I wouldn't be up to the, the, the intellectual points that, that these folk need. But he was telling a very encouraging story, a man who, a young man, a man in his 20s, student in Oxford, doing a PhD. You don't do that and, well, without something up here. And yet, partly through what he was doing, way back, looking at ancient manuscripts and all the rest of it, he'd become increasingly depressed back in the autumn. To the point where he actually wondered if there was much point to life itself. And actually had contemplated when it be well. And so despairing was he that although he had no, well, very, very token Roman Catholic background, but not in any way practicing, no immediate practicing people, so despairing was that Christmas, he actually heard a carol, I think it was. And he thought, hmm, maybe I should pray. <laughs> Try praying. That's why these books are so important. Maybe I should pray. So he started praying. Asking that if there was a God, and if God was concerned about his life, that somehow he would make him known. Well, he had never gone to anything, church-wise, and never gone to chapel services, but he felt prompted to go to an Ash Wednesday service in the university chapel. Again, very different from our tradition, but that's why I think it stood out. You know, certain degree of pomp and circumstance and all the rest of it. And yet, as he heard the story of Jesus going to the wilderness and being tempted by Satan, his heart was opened. And there and then, he became a believer. There is one who has been tempted in every way as we have and yet did not sin. He is our high priest. He lives to intercede for us. How can we not, brothers and sisters, be filled both with humility and awe, but also with thanksgiving and worship? This is our blessed Redeemer. And that young man will be baptized in Oriel College. He'll be a good Anglican. But about everything else, he'll be a child of the living God. As Jesus entered in, Paul tells us in Philippians, he who was in equality with God did not consider it something to be grasped, but became obedient. Obedient to what? Even to death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him to the right hand, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess as our banner stands there week after week and tells us that Jesus is Lord. Is that not a blessing this morning? Is that not a benefit to our souls, whatever situation you're going through, whatever trial, whatever worry, whatever concern? What do you think our brothers and sisters in Ukraine? I don't think it's a great blessing and comfort to, them. to those in Russia. To another story, as I, I'm conscious time's passing, we met during the week with a friend who's been coming to share with us from Open Doors. A fine, fine man. Had a great time over at the Butterfly Cafe. Me and Andrew, young Andrew Robertson and Sam Parkinson tell you, I go with these younger guys because it drops the age quite a bit markedly, I have to say. 
But that's the future of the church. I have no doubt that's the future. My job in these latter days is to, you know, they must increase as I decrease. But as we share together, and as that man shared a recent story at her of two North Korean brothers who somehow worked in a factory, in a kind of camp place, but somehow, by the Holy Spirit, had identified each other as Christians. How they did that, we don't know. And the toilet, the only place they could meet together in any private, because of course, as we know, North Korea, the most unchristian, most persecuted country in the world, number one in the, the list. And they couldn't meet in public, obviously. They couldn't show anything that would show that they identified. So what did they do? The toilets were stinking. People avoided, the guys, whoever else, avoided going there. So where did they meet? For a time of fellowship in the toilet. And you know what, friends? They actually prayed that it would be so stinking that no one else would come in. I don't know about you, but that really humbled me. So desperate to have fellowship that they went to the bog, literally, so that they might have Christian fellowship and call upon the living God and know their great high priest interceding for them in that mess and hellhole. That is Christianity. It's all because of Jesus. Are all sufficient and gracious and merciful. Thanks be to God for him.